Welcome to the Joel Lattice Show. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can get it on SoundCloud. Um, I'm so grateful for you guys listening to the podcast, reaching out, asking where the podcast has been. Uh, taking a break uh, from podcasting, just life got in the way. Um, but I thought I thought that the bye week of the Seahawks would be a good opportunity for us um, to talk about the last five weeks, where the Seahawks are at, um, to talk about where they're headed, how things shape up, how things look, injury front with Chris Carson and um, you know Cliff Averill, et cetera, et cetera. We have lots of things to discuss in that segment. But first, before we get to talking about the Seahawks, I have one of my favorite, favorite voices about the Seattle Mariners is going to join us for about 20 minutes. I've already pre-recorded this interview. Jason Churchill from Prospect Insider, from Herosports.com, and from my favorite thing, Baseball Things. You can find Baseball Things at patreon.com slash baseball things. Uh, Jason is such a brilliant mind when it comes to baseball, and I'm so grateful that he took the time to come and talk about it on our show. And uh, please, please, please listen and learn about the Mariners. If you had any inkling to get into baseball, you need to listen to the next 20 minutes of this podcast. Um, so I'm not going to take up any more time. We're back. Joel Latta Show, revamped. Here's Jason Churchill. All right, and welcome back to the Joel Latta Show. We've got a very special guest, Jason Churchill from Prospect Insider, Hero Sports, and my personal favorite project of his, Baseball Things Podcast. Jason, thanks for taking the time. Hey, no problem, Joel, anytime. Hey, I wanted to jump in and just kind of talk about the last two years. Uh, Jerry DePoto, Scott Service, they've been here for now two plus years, and I'm just curious your thoughts on uh, the body of work over the last two years from those two. I really like what Scott Service has going, and this is more of a, a, a staff thing. I, I think a lot of times the, the manager, and while ultimately he's responsible for it, I think the staff around him is so important that it, this is really like a, a, an answer in staff. I, I, I absolutely love Mel Stottlemyre um, and love the way he talks about pitching and love the way that he talks about how his pitchers have to communicate to him just as much as the other way around. I think that creates a really nice atmosphere. And Scott Service, I think, is actually very smart with pitchers, but I think he even understands that he's still learning how to use his pitchers. I think their open-mindedness is uh, with that field staff is, is what sells me on them the most. Uh, I think the job they've done, the two years they've been here, if I were to give them a grade, it'd be somewhere between C plus and B minus, you know, certainly not great. I think that, you know, great grades are reserved for teams that get to the postseason and win 90 games. But considering what's been going on, I think the field staff's done pretty good. Uh, I'm a Jerry DePoto fan, but I don't know how good of a general manager he is. I know he's very smart. I know he's very creative. Um, there are times where I think he's a little bit too aggressive and I think a, a lot of fans out there are, are wondering if you know it's a bit of a problem uh, you know it's constant trades it's constant tinkering um, there are people that I talk to around the game that think you know what you're not creating any continuity with your roster there um, but I think it's it was so early and, and there was such a lack of uh, of depth and a, a lack of talent beyond like the first 18, 20 guys on the roster that a lot of the tinkering that he has done was, was, uh, was necessary. So I, you know, I'd give them passing grades, um, but year three and year four, I mean, I'm not sure year four is guaranteed um, for Jerry DePoto. I think he's going to get there, but if they have a bad year in 2018 and win 75 games or something, 
Um, no matter what the reason is, you have to question whether Jerry Depoto's the guy. At this point, I still think there's a good chance that he is, and that's mostly based on kind of scouting the scout, um, just listening to him, the way he talks, how open-minded they are, the fact that they use analytics, and I think they use analytics properly. Um, in terms of talent evaluation, I, say, I, I think the jury's still out, and ultimately it's going to come down to that. Um, what, what do you think the time frame is if they do get extended next year? Um, as far as when they're going to get extended or, yeah. um, I think to be honest with you, I think service gets something done this off season. I've been saying wow. that for a little while. I, I think, I don't think you want the lame duck manager thing. Um, mm. I, I think it's very important if he's your guy for 2018, at least commit the dollars to him for 2019. So he doesn't think he's this lame duck manager. Um, it, now it, there's one thing that could completely delete that from, you know, the, the, the conversation and that's. Service and DePoto have a really good relationship and mm -hmm. they know each other really well and they've worked with each other before when Service was a front office guy and a player development guy. Um, maybe Scott Service wouldn't necessarily feel that lame duck pressure because of who his boss is. So that, that's entirely possible. But I do think they get something done with Scott Service moving forward. I, I think you do want your manager to, to have a contract beyond the current season. And, and I think that's important for the roster too. I think that's important for Mike Zanino to know that Scott Service is going to be his manager for 2019 as well as 2018, mm -hmm. especially if you're going to try to, you know, convince a couple of these young players to, you know, maybe sign extensions like we've been talking about. Like maybe James Paxton is a two-year extension guy. Maybe Zanino is a long-term extension guy. Uh, maybe you try to get something done with a Mitch Haniger, just like you did with Gene Segura. Um, I, I think those guys want to know who their manager is going to be beyond the current season. And if they don't, they may be less likely and less open to talking multi-year deals and just going year to year and then getting to free agency. So uh, I do think service gets something done. I think Jerry Depoto um, – that's a good question. I, I'm still trying to get a, maybe you have a better uh, grasp of, of Kevin Mather and John Stanton's, um, you know, kind of what their role in this is going to be. Cause I don't really know what that is yet. I don't know yeah. how involved uh, Stanton is going to be in the Jerry DePoto decision, or if it's really just going to be Kevin Mather's call. I really don't know the answer to that question. Got it. Well, and I want to kind of shift gears with this, too, because with what you're talking about with Jerry DePoto and, and his decisions and, you know, how he's been doing things, he, he, made, he made a note in the postseason press conference to talk about Felix Hernandez, and he, he really, like, kind of hammered home that they were going to take a different approach uh, with Felix Hernandez. First of all, what do you think that's uh, what that means from him is? And then secondly, if you are Jerry DePoto, how would Jason Churchill handle Felix Hernandez this offseason? I think what um, Jerry meant by that was, and I think they're going to do it with more than just Felix Hernandez. I just think it's more important for Felix Hernandez considering the situation that he's in with injuries and durability, things of that nature. I think what he meant was we can't just go, hey, Felix, go give us seven. We'll take five and two thirds. Do the best you can every fifth or sixth day. Mm -hmm. I think I really think that's all that was, um, you know, maybe they do something different in between starts and things like that. But I think it was about, you know, how often they're going to use them and what they're going to expect from them. But, you know, and I said this in, in, in my podcast, it, if Felix Hernandez doesn't do something different over the offseason, it none of that's going to matter. None of that. It's going to matter at all. We've seen Felix come off of an extra day's rest over the past three seasons now, and it hasn't done a darn thing for him. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not the issue here. Um, maybe he's no longer capable of going six and seven innings on a regular basis. Entirely possible. But in terms of trying to make him more effective by using him less, uh, 
what are you gonna do? You gonna throw him in the bullpen and use him as the long man? That doesn't seem to make sense either. You know what I mean? Like next to Giovanni Gallardo. Right. Like like Felix Hernandez is like he's been a starter. Like you remember this, Joel. It, it he he came up in, in late 05. He's been a starting pitcher his whole life. Like yeah. you can't turn him into something he's never been and just expect the um the the results to be drastically different i I think this is i think felix hernandez's future is all locked up and surrounded by hey what does felix do over the offseason to train as a pitcher instead of just an athlete and and that that that's where it starts and for me that's where it ends if he doesn't do it right it's not gonna nothing is going to matter. I mean, that doesn't mean he can't be a little bit better or a little bit more available just on luck or, um, you know, maybe he sat out long enough for the shoulder to repair itself or for the elbow to repair itself a little bit more than it was when he came back the first and the second time this year. But he he's, he's throwing 91 miles an hour. The command isn't there like it was in 2014, I think was the last time we saw the above average command from Felix. And we're not seeing the bite on the curveball. We're not seeing the the changeup as consistent as it was. And it, he's just not the same guy from top to bottom. And that's physical. That's uh, the touch on his changeup. That's everything. And unless he wants to remake himself physically as a pitcher, you know, they can try anything they want, but they're just going to get Felix 2016, 2017 out of it. So I was a little disappointed to hear, and I mentioned this on baseball things mm-hmm. um, the other night on, on Wednesday, that DePoto believes, and maybe the Mariners believe as a whole, that you can't strengthen joints and you can't strengthen ligaments because that's just unequivocally false. Um, right. So I hope he meant something else by that. And I'm kind of hoping at some point somebody asks him or he clarifies that. Um, I think I'm going to send a note to a couple of my uh, contacts at the local radio stations. Hey, when you have the photo <laughs> on, ask them about this because this right. is ridiculous. You absolutely can strengthen ligaments and you absolutely can strengthen joints. I mean, DePoto's a smart guy. He's a hell of a lot smarter than I am, a hundredfold. It's weird that he would say something like that. So I have to think that he meant something else by that. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know what that is, but I'm kind of curious uh, ultimately what that response is going to be if somebody does ask him. But um, yeah, I'm not expecting a whole lot from Felix Hernandez next year, unfortunately. Yeah, that's too bad. It's it's interesting to talk about Felix because I think I think he's uncomfortable not being the best player on the team. Like just from my perspective and, and being around him a little bit, uh, you know, just people in my world that kind of know him. And I, it seems like he's uncomfortable not being the best player on the plan, like on the team. I think you're on to something there. I think it's probably more Felix is uncomfortable not being great. I'm not sure if it's about being the best team. I'm not sure if it's an ego thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to that, like he has to be number one. But I do think the fact that he's not very good and he knows it is a problem for him. But mm-hmm. don't you don't you want that to be a problem for him? You don't want him to be okay with with that. You know, you want right. him to, um, and, and hopefully that that competitive nature. Um, drives him to be as open-minded as it takes um, because his offseason this is the most important offseason of Felix Hernandez's career he's going to be 32 years old in April and he's running out of time to kind of remake himself and to do things right I mean if we're looking at this issue in two or three years his Mariner career will be over they won't have any interest in keeping him around any longer he has to remake he might be out of baseball in three years like how crazy is that to think about that's insane you know i like felix hernandez out of baseball before he's 35 like does that sound like real this sounds like fake news to me but you know what that's where he's headed 
and wow. he's got to remake himself and perform significantly better, or he's going to find himself floating around at best. And nobody wants to see that. And I'm sure Felix doesn't want to see that. He's been so loyal to this city. I just hope he figures it out before his contract is up because in the end, you know, he's, he's the kind of guy that, um, you know, he's, he's certainly a leader. Uh, he's, he sets a good example for players and fans and the media like him. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of sad what's going on, but it's all a 100% is up to Felix. I don't even think if you're the Mariners, you can really tell them what to do. I think they've tried that and hasn't worked. I want to transition a little bit um, to another player that is, you know, over 30 and that's Robinson Cano. Uh, This is our second baseman for the last few years and one of the greats um, in baseball, but he is, you know, getting older and and there kind of seems to be that unspoken thought that he'd be moving to first base. And and I'm curious to your thoughts. And I know you've talked about this on Twitter, answering questions on baseball things, et cetera. Um, But for our podcast and our listeners, uh, what do you think that process looks like? Does that start this off season? And then from that, what does that mean for second base? Does Gene Segura move to second base? Uh, Does someone from AAA or, you know, free agent come in and play second base once that, once that process starts? I think perfect world, um, Robinson Cano goes to the Mariners and says, hey, I'm going to be 35, and while I want to still play second base as much as possible, I'm willing to play some first base if that helps the club, and if Segura moves to second and we go get Zach Cozart, for example. I mean, in a perfect world, Cano goes to the team and says, I'm willing to do whatever including move to first base. I don't know that's going to be the case because these guys do have pride. Well, I don't want, I don't want to call it ego. They do have pride. Robinson Cano has been a very solid second baseman um, for the majority of his career, his entire career, really. And But we have heard some hints from Scott Service and Jerry Depoto talking about how they'd like to get more athletic. Um, mm-hmm. And I think some of that has to do with second base. I mean, think of where else could that be? Like, to be honest with you, their outfield with Dyson and Heredia and Gamble and Haneker, can you really expect to get more athletic in the outfield? I say no. No, you can't. Yeah. Um, their shortstop is athletic enough. Uh, Kyle Seeger's plenty good at third base. You're not doing anything there um, specifically to athleticism. First base isn't an athletic spot. Can you always get better there defensively? Sure. Um, so it's second base. I mean, you know, Cano, you don't really think of Cano as being like this highly athletic guy with speed and great footwork and things like that. Uh, he's never done it with uh, great foot speed. I think Scott service was talking about second base. And, and I do think ideally, you know, Cano's playing a lot of first base in 2018 and Segura is playing mostly second base and you go out and get an upgrade defensively at shortstop who can handle the bat. I mean, Zach Cozart's just the first name that comes to mind because, you know, he's a plus defender and he had a career year at the plate. I'm not sure that's ideal with the Mariners who have limited resources, but they do have money and money's what it's going to take to get a guy like that. Um, As far as what's most likely, I think, um, I think what's most likely is Cano plays a little bit of first base in 2018. Hmm. Um, And I'm not worried about the transition defensively, same side of the field. Um, You know, Cano is, Cano's athletic in the way that I like to talk about athleticism. And I think I've talked about this a lot in the past. Um, I think I started that with the Dustin Ackley transition to second base, not the most athletic guy in the world, but he is athletic in the muscle memory that it takes to go from, center field to first base to second base uh, and do it in such a short period of time is pretty remarkable. And I have no doubt that Robinson Cano can make a transition to first base in one off season. And we wouldn't even know that he'd never really played first base before. Um, 
but I do think it's most realistic that he just kind of gets introduced to the position in the spring or late in the winter, plays a little bit of first base in 2018, and in 2019 becomes the full-time first base. So I think that's a little bit more realistic to expect. Uh, I think Cano would probably like to give second base another go, have a better year, and kind of not go out with some of the mistakes that he made defensively this uh, this past season. And last question for you. Um, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the outfield. And, and you know, they Scott and Jerry DePoto kind of hinted at Hanniger playing center field and then being comfortable with that. And uh, I, I'm not necessarily sure that that's the best fit for Hanniger. And I'm just curious, um, do you think that that transition to center field for him is going to be a good one for him as a player? And then possibly what's going to happen in free agency uh, for the outfield with the Mariners? I, I think the – and I actually addressed this uh, on Friday night's podcast. But I think the thing with Hanniger is, like, it's not a transition. I think that's one of the reasons why DePoto feels so comfortable. I never saw Mitch Hanniger play anything but center field in the minors. That's how often he played. He was an everyday center fielder in the minors. So he's fine there and he's, he's adequate there. Um, if you've been around these parts long enough, um, you'll remember a guy named Jeremy Reed that came up uh, oh, yeah. about 10, 11 years ago, played center field. He was kind of a Jim Edmonds type center fielder. He didn't have as much range, but he'd make the diving catch and people thought he was a really good center fielder. But eliminate all those diving catches. That's Mitch Hanniger in center field. Very mm-hmm. adequate, although he has a better arm. Uh, very adequate, will never hurt you defensively, but he might hurt himself. Um, and I'm worried about, <laughs> and I'm worried about, I, I don't necessarily think Mitch Hanniger is injury prone. One of those injuries this year was obviously the fluke getting hit in the face. Right. And if you want to keep a guy healthy, and it's really important in my opinion, maybe more important than is being talked about anywhere else, that Mitch Hanniger stays healthy next year because we are seeing some signs of decline at the plate with Robinson Cano. Um, who knows what's going to go on with Seager. He did have a little bit of a down year. It wasn't ridiculously bad, but a little bit of a down year. What are we going to get um, from Kyle Seager? What are we going to see from Kyle Seager next year? Um, it's it's important to keep Hanniger in the lineup on a regular basis, and playing him in center field every day isn't the best way to do that. Um, and it, it, it brings your center field defense down a full notch. The Heredia-Gerard Dyson combination this year is a full tick, maybe more, better than what Mitch Hanniger is going to bring you uh, defensively, but I- I'm okay with Hanniger playing there a little bit, particularly if you pick up over the off season, a uh, corner outfielder that is at least adequate defensively, maybe even plus that is a platoon advantage for you. For example, maybe Hanniger plays, um, plays center field versus some left-handers and you pick up a right-handed hitting right fielder who can't play center field so you have to play him in right and therefore you slide Hanniger over and it's kind of an offensive alignment so to speak um, I think you can do that and if, as long as he's not playing center field you know like half the season four days a week um, I, I think you're okay there I, I think he doesn't hurt you in the long run defensively but I would just rather just you know what Mitch you're a right fielder uh, go out and be our right fielder and if we absolutely need you in center field we'll use you in center field um, I don't love the idea, but he's capable of doing that. Absolutely. I, I would just rather not take the risk that it's going to wear him down and that in August, uh, his, his swing slows down and, you know, maybe it, uh, uh, is conducive to, uh, some, some more injuries for him because they're going to need his bat. I actually mentioned last night, Joel, I'm not sure if you had a chance to listen, but I mentioned last night, why not lead Hannah off? Why not bat him one in Segura two? Like if they're mm-hmm. not, if they're not going to do the Kyle Seeger thing, in the number two spot. Why force the Ben Gamble thing? 
And if you're yeah. gonna if you're gonna go Segura Haniger, why not go Haniger Segura? And you know, like Haniger is just as good a bet to throw up a a, a three fifty plus on base percentage as as is Segura. And while he doesn't make as much contact, he replaces that with power. And Segura hits the ball to right field more. So you get Haniger on first base, and Segura take advantage takes advantage of the hole over on first base. Uh, Segura is not going to run as much anymore anyway. So I'm not sure uh, swapping him. Uh, makes a bit of difference when it comes to, uh, you know, stealing bases for Segura. I don't know. That was just an idea I threw out last night. As far as free agency, uh, it's a good, good, uh, good question. And, and it's going to be a fun conversation because the Mariners could do little to nothing in the outfield. Mm. Um, and it would make some sense. I think they need at least a, a platoon option um, th- th- to kind of fit with uh, Guillermo Heredia, no matter what uh, defensive alignment uh, he uh, uh, combines with Heredia for, but, uh, it's going to depend on what they want to do at first base and what they're going to do with that utility spot. If they get a utility player that's capable of playing outfield, they might not add an outfielder at all, um, which would be really interesting. So I I think they need to go everyday player in either center field or at first base or find that super utility guy. And there's just not a lot of those guys around. So um, if they sign a Yonder Alonso or a center field option early in the year, I think that's going to give us a big clue on what Jerry DePoto's plans are for the remainder of the offseason. There he is, Jason Churchill from Prospect Insider Hero Sports. And make sure you go to patreon.com slash baseball things. I'm a subscriber. You need to be a subscriber. It's the most uh, unique Mariners content that you'll find anywhere on the Internet. And you can follow him on Twitter at Prospect Insider. Jason, thank you so much. Hey, you got it. Thanks, Joel. Appreciate it. All right, and we're back on the Joel Latta Show. Huge thank you to Jason for coming on, talking about the Mariners organization, Felix Hernandez, Mitch Haniger, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so grateful to him for coming on and talking about the Mariners. Make sure you go to Baseball Things on patreon.com slash baseball things. Find out how you can support, listen, and uh, gain some knowledge about baseball. But now we transfer and we talk about the Seattle Seahawks. A 3-2 and two record, um, and, and by my estimation – and it's probably pretty hard for any radio host or any podcaster to estimate the Seahawks as they currently exist. Um, but from my perspective, this team has been a tale of two halves. Um, largely, especially early on, especially in Tennessee, against the Indianapolis Colts, where the first half offensively has just been inconceivable. Like, lots of bad play calls, lots of bad execution, missed blocks on the offensive line. Reese Odiambo, I'm sorry, man, but you are not meant to play left tackle. And I'm getting into my rants early. But they just haven't been able to get into a rhythm early offensively. And from what I've understood and what I've seen on Twitter and, and heard on the radio is that this lies largely on Russell Wilson's back. And I disagree with that. Russell Wilson is doing everything he can. He's running for his life. He is trying to make plays. He's running the ball. He's the second leading rusher on the team behind Chris Carson, who just got hurt. But we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But Russell Wilson, it's, it's what else can he do? I mean, he's uh, 118 or 111 for 178, 62% completion. He's thrown for 1,200 yards. He's thrown eight touchdowns in five games, only three interceptions. He's averaging 230 yards a game, uh, which is pretty good for uh, a Russell Wilson start. He's got a 4.5% touchdown rate. Um, Russell Wilson, has a he's playing at a rating of 90.6. Russell Wilson has not, in my estimation, been the problem. 
What has been the problem is some of the play calling on in r- obvious rundowns. We're spreading it out wide, five wide, and Russell's an empty, and they're not hitting the ball off. They're not running the ball enough. And when your leading rusher is Chris Carson, he has 49 attempts for 208 yards, an average of 4.2 yards a carry, which to me is amazing. I, I'm very, I was so excited about Chris Carson behind the offensive line that exists right now. That was tremendous. Like I was psyched on that. But because Chris Carson is down and we have to rely on a guy in Eddie Lacy who's averaging three yards a carry or Thomas Rawls who is averaging 1.8 yards a carry, I'm not encouraged by the state of the run game. And if that's what we have to do early on in games in in Daryl Bevel's estimation and Pete Carroll's estimation uh, is to establish the run, man, I'm nervous about the first half of games uh, before Russell Wilson kind of, it seems like he has to do his Houdini act and start in the two minutes of the first half with two minutes left. He has to kind of put the team on his back and go no huddle. What the Seahawks have to do is they have to figure out a way to get better offensively with the offensive line. And there's been rumors uh, on Twitter, Davis Sue, Jared Stanger. Um, I don't even know if that's how you say your name, Jared. Sorry if you listen to this. Um, but they've all been reporting that the Seahawks have been in contact with the Houston Texans to pick up Dwayne Brown. And Dwayne Brown is a guy that l- gave up the second fewest pressures in the NFL last year, and he's continuing at that rate this season uh, I want a left tackle, and I want Riso Diombo to not take snaps at the left tackle position anymore. He shouldn't be starting. Luke Jokel's been an average left tackle, uh, or left guard, I'm sorry. Justin Britt at center has been uh, not worthy of his $9 million a year, but it's serviceable for what we have. And I, I struggle to articulate what I see but I just see ineffectiveness. I see execution errors. I see missed blocking assignments. Um, I see the routes not being run effectively by the receivers. Russell's missed more spots. Um, and from what I can tell, you can't really prove it. But from if I were to guess, it would be that the receivers are running the wrong routes. Um, and then all of a sudden, after all of that, we talked about the run game being bad, the left tackle being bad. Jermaine Fetty being bad, talked about all of that. Two minutes left in the first half, pretty much consistently across all five games, Russell Wilson has put the team on his back, they've gone down a drive, and they've either scored a field goal or a touchdown in all of those games. And they've been close at halftime every single time. Every single game, they've been close at halftime. And then the third quarter hits, and they, they come out of the, uh, come out of the uh, locker room, and they're fired up, and they do it again. And they've been out of the shoot from the halftime, they've been hot and they come out and they score. I don't understand this. I wish someone can explain this to, to me, how this operates and how this works. But why can't the Seahawks come out in the first quarter and put up a good drive? Now, mind you, against San Francisco, I was at this game at home. Um, the Seahawks came out in the first two drives and they would have had touchdowns. But CJ Procise drops a walk-in touchdown. And then there's another dropped touchdown, and they settled. They had to settle. But largely, in the first half of games, the Seahawks have been terrible, and then the second half is where they finally went on a run. You see Russell Wilson get comfortable. 
I think that's that that might be part of the problem. I think in the first half of games, Russell Wilson hasn't been comfortable. He seems uneasy in the pocket. He's made missed throws. Um, he's overthrown. That we've seen that a lot this year. Is Russell Wilson airing it out and going above the receivers' heads? And that's scary um, because we need Russell to be on pinpoint. And by the time halftime rolls around, he gets to that. Um, but against teams like Atlanta, against teams like Houston, um, against against teams like even uh, our division rivals, when, we, when the Rams come back to play us in Seattle, even against Arizona, Russell Wilson can't afford um, to be airing it out and overthrowing guys by two or three yards or even just putting it right over their head. We need him to be pinpoint and we need him to get comfortable. Uh, and like we said, Dwayne Brown from Houston would be a big, big help to that to make him comfortable earlier. Um, because he gets he gets antsy. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, uh, but Russell really gets antsy when he can't he doesn't feel comfortable, and you can kind of tell he's like gets those fast feet, and I I appreciate that because he's not going to get killed back there. Um, but sometimes I think that in times where he's running out of the pocket to try to create space, he either runs into another defender or he had more time in the pocket that he could have made a better throw and didn't have to check it down and didn't have to run it out of bounds and didn't have to try to scramble for three or four yards. So this team has really been a tale of two halves. Now, on the other side of the ball, the defense has been unbelievable. Earl Thomas is playing out of his mind I don't know if you guys saw this on Sunday when they played the Rams. Uh, there was a there was a, a check down that Jared Goff threw into the flat, and Earl Thomas, I, I, I swear to you, he was playing high safety. He was a good 25 yards, and the the the, re- the receiver had lots of green space, and he was booking it down down by the sideline, probably about the 40 yard line, and and Earl Thomas came in like a laser beam, or as Miley Cyrus would like to say it. He came in like a wrecking ball, and he hit that guy so hard and with all of his body weight. He plays with zero fear. Earl Thomas plays with no fear. He does not care. He does not worry about it. He just kills it, and he's he's playing at a level right now where he sees the ball and he gets the ball, and then you see another play on Sunday when Todd Gurley is walking into the end zone. He punches the ball out, fumbles it into the end zone, that it's no touchdown, and the Seahawks get the ball at their own 20, which you may agree with that rule or or not may may not agree with that rule, but as a Seahawks fan, we should love that rule because that's the third time in five years that that rule has benefited us. If you remember, a couple years ago, he did the same thing, Earl Thomas, in all three of these, did that to, or not all three of these, I'm sorry, he did that to Benny Cunningham, to score a touchdown, would have scored a touchdown, he punched it out, and then Cam Chancellor did that to Megatron, Calvin Johnson. Uh, So I'm a big fan of that rule, because it's benefiting the team that I root for. Wouldn't you know? But the defense has been absolutely incredible. What we've seen as out of rookie Nas Jones being a just an absolute force and disruption on the defensive line interior, what you've seen from Frank Clark, the third-year man, uh, that's absolutely hitting. He's one of our best draft picks in the Pete and John era. Uh, Frank Clark is on an absolute tear. He has stepped in to the injury of, of Cliff Averill um, and played masterfully. He just is everywhere. That dude is tireless. He does not quit. 
And it's so nice to see a young guy being able to do that and step in and play at the level that we've seen Cliff Averill and we've seen Michael Bennett and we've seen uh, not Atabaru, Brandon Meebane in the past before he left Seattle. It's nice to have a guy on defense that can do that on the defensive line. And it makes me feel with him and Nas Jones that our future is bright. And even Jaron Reed, who is also a draft pick from last year um, or the year before, that has really started to pick it up and play well. And so I'm really, 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 really excited for defense. As well on the defense, Bobby Wagner is leading the team in tackles. And he just killed, he's just such a solid rock in the center. And nothing gets by him. You've seen just a couple plays where he may, he missed the hole and missed the tackle. Um, but, man, Bobby's playing at another level. Sorry, I'm just trying to go through this because we haven't been podcasting every single week. And we're going to do another one next week to preview um, our next game, which is against the New York Giants in New York. Uh, I have really good hope, high hopes about that uh, for next week because the, the Giants, man, Odell breaking his leg. You had Sterling Shepard go down. He's in a boot walking around their locker room. And then Brandon Marshall is out for the season. Just a mess in New York. And, and it's really sad because you want to have a competitive, competitive games as a fan. Um, but it looks like that's going to be an easy win for the Seahawks. So we'll do another podcast next week about that. Moving on, reviewing what we've seen, the Russell Wilson debate. Uh, I've talked about it a little bit already but the Russell Wilson debate there's people on two sides of the spectrum um, particularly on 710 and 950 the sports radio world uh, in Seattle there's people on two two sides is Russell Wilson playing good or is Russell Wilson part of the problem obviously you've already heard my take I don't think Russell Wilson is part of the problem in this but I do think I do think that there are things that Russell Wilson is doing um Currently, I think overall he has been a positive. He's a reason why they are winning games. He's a reason why they're even in games. Um, But there are things that he's doing that are frustrating me as a fan watching the game. Number one, Russell Wilson is way, way too quick to run out of the pocket. More often than not, because if you think about it in the totality of, of the NFL game, if a team gets 15 hurries on a quarterback. That's a tremendous amount of hurries. That's a tremendous amount of times where the defense gets to the quarterback. You think about an NFL offense, they average about 50 or 50 offensive plays, 45 to 50 offensive plays a game. So 15 is about a quarter of the time that Russell Wilson has the ball. Um, my problem with with what Russell Wilson is doing is I think that he's too quick to run. I think he's too quick to move out of the pocket. There's been several times um, where Russell Wilson has moved away from his a clean pocket, anticipating pressure that's not there. Uh, what a lot of people like to call ghost pressure, where where they sense something that's not actually there. And what it's done is he's either moved to the left or to the right into another defender um, and taken a sack or gotten tackled or you know they shoelace tackle him um, as he's trying to run away when he really could have stepped into a throw and made a a dart throw to Paul Richardson or maybe Jimmy Graham or Doug Baldwin and that's what I've seen way 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 too often from Russell this year and so as this season continues I'd like to see Russell um, not get so antsy not sense that ghost pressure but to really step into those throws and rip it down the field because when he is on in those drives that we've seen so many times this year the reason why we have three wins probably let's be honest uh, there's a good possibility 
that the Seahawks would be 1-4 right now if it weren't for Russell Wilson putting the team on his back in certain situations. Um, and, you know, largely, we could have lost all the games that we lost except for Indianapolis if it hadn't been for tremendous drives and efforts by Russell Wilson. Think about it. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? Pretty crazy to think about how much he affects the game. So that's number one is his just quickness to move in and out of the pocket when it's actually a clean pocket. He's too antsy to move. Number two, and it's my last one for Russell. Um, Russell has really been so uptight, and it kind of continues off the previous point. But he seems like he's so antsy and he's so uptight that he's gripping the ball too hard and he's just overthrowing receivers and he needs to be laser accurate. It's almost like, and I, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a psychiatrist or a therapist or whatever, but it's almost like Russell gets in a fog. When Russell's not comfortable in the pocket, when he can't really laser in, when he really can't dial into what's happening in the game, it's almost like Russell gets a fog and it's like he can't see. It's almost like when you um, are driving in the rain and you drive on the freeway and a semi drives by you and they splash water on your windshield. That's what it almost almost feels like when Russell's back there and he's not comfortable. And so what starts to happen is he overthrows, he's not hitting his guys in the right lane, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But here's the overarching overarching thing is that Russell Wilson is is fantastic at coming back in the times where you need him. And he will get into a rhythm where he will play complete games. He will be on it all season long, or an all game long. And he will have stretches for four or five or six games where he's just lights out. And we're just waiting to see that. He's done it all all of his career. All of his career. He got the Seahawks last year, even injured. He got into 10-6 and six and into the playoffs. So you've got to trust him, even though there's a few flaws uh, of his. And I... You know, I've been the biggest Russell Homer his whole career, but you have to admit that there are things that are happening right now that you don't like, and those are the two things for me. But overall, I'm extremely positive for what's next with Russell because I, I, I'm just waiting, and I know it's speculation, but I'm just waiting for that moment where he really goes off and has a great night. And he has a great night, and he has a great night, and it's consistent, and he consistent have a five, six game stretch um, where. You know, he's putting up the numbers that he did in 2015, those last eight games. Maybe not so so off the charts, um, but he can sustain those five, six game stretches. <clears throat> uh, next, I want to review and talk about the running game. Chris Carson, what a terrible, terrible break, literally. And I, I, that's, I know that's insensitive. I'm sorry. What a terrible break the Seahawks had with Chris Carson going down. Such a hopeful... Um, part of our rookie class this year, the seventh round pick, Chris Carson, uh, out of training camp, won the job as the starting running back because Thomas Rawls is a mess and Eddie Lacy isn't any good. Um, and JD, JD McKissick is a kind of a trick play <clears throat> specialist, excuse me. And he isn't a starter. He had a great couple of plays against Indianapolis, but he's not going to be your workhorse in and out on first and second and third down. Um, that's going to be Chris Carson in the future. And he goes down on a, on a crazy play where someone folds his leg back in half and um, he has a fractured leg right up, right below the knee and a high ankle sprain. It's just terrible for what he was doing. Like I said earlier in the show, he has 49 carries, 208 yards, uh, a couple touchdowns, and or no, no touchdowns. Chris Carson didn't have any touchdowns. Um, 
but just heartbreaking because he was your guy that man against that 49ers against the 49ers in that game at home when you needed him to get to sustain drives he did he had 20 carries for 96 yards that day and uh Man, he just was that guy that was starting to stabilize. It's like when we needed the run game to be effective to close out that game, he was able to do that. Um, and no, like no other running back on our offense has been able to do. And so Chris Carson is um, that's such a big blow, and he probably won't be back this year. I know the Seahawks have been saying that he's possibly coming back in December. Let's be honest. When you have two major injuries like that, you shut him down for the year and you, you let him come back next year and pick up right where he left off because uh, that's what I believe he is. I believe he's that special of a talent. Um, he's been nothing but excel in the in the moments that we've given him this year, and uh, I have no reason to believe that he wouldn't just pick up right where he left off and do the exact same thing next season. So get well soon, Chris Carson. What's next for the Seahawks at running back? Is it just a medley uh, of, of carries for Thomas Rawls and Eddie Lacy? Do we rely on Russell Wilson to scramble more? Do we give more of the load to J.D. McKissick, who Pete Carroll and Richard Sherman have quote-unquote called a dog, that he just, he just gets it and he plays football hard and he makes plays? But is he the kind of guy that you can trust down in and down out to make the plays when you need to? I'm not so sure about J.D. McKissick. Do I trust C.J. CJ Procise? I almost forgot about C.J. Procise because he's injured so much. And I know Pete Carroll on the radio said that he'd be back this this coming next couple weeks. And um, But it's we're at a point with the running backs where it's like all of them are either just not very good or they're injury prone. Thomas Rawls has yet to prove that he can stay healthy. C.J. Procise has yet to prove that he can stay healthy. Uh... Eddie Lacy is just not a very effective. And J.D. McKissick is too young and, and not an, not experienced enough um, for us to really get a handle on who he's going to be. But my guess is is that, well, best, best case scenario is, is that they play Thomas Rawls because he's really the only guy um, that can handle that kind of load if he can stay healthy. He's proven in the past when he took over from Marshawn Lynch a couple years ago that he could be that guy, that he could take 20 carries and be fine. Ideally, he comes back and he can do that. He can do those things. Ideally, he comes back and he just picks up and he can do that. But he has yet to show that this year. He's averaging 1.8 yards per carry, which is just horrendous. And so you can't trust him. You can't trust him. And so what you what they're end up going to end up doing is probably 10 carries for Thomas Rawls, 15 carries for Eddie Lacy in those first and second down situations, just trying to get a few yards. And Russell's going to throw for the most attempts in his career. This year, watch it happen. Watch him have the most yards in his career. Watch him have the most attempts. Uh, watch that kind of that balance factor of trying to be 50-50 between running and passing. Watch that fade away. Watch that fade away. It's going to be 60-40. It's going to be 65-35 passing to running this year. Because without that lead back, without that guy you trust, without that guy you know is going to be durable, without that guy, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you trust Russell Wilson more? Why wouldn't you put the ball in his hands and and do screen passes and find ways like Drew Brees does um, to counter a poor week or poor running game? If I'm a if I'm a betting man, I'm guessing that that's the, the route the Seahawks are going to go the rest of this season. And it scares me, but at the same time, I trust Russell Wilson in, implicitly more than I do Thomas Rawls, J.D. McKissick, and Eddie Lacy. And I'm a if I'm a fantasy football owner. I, I'm I'm 
ecstatic about that as as a Russell Wilson fantasy football owner uh, because the more opportunity he's going to get, the more yards, the more touchdowns, etc. But man, is this team better when they have a balanced attack? Yes, when they're at their best, they're 50-50 passing and running, but they just don't have the the uh, manpower to do that right now. They just don't. Thomas Rawls, you can't trust. J.D. McKissick, too too early to tell. Eddie Lacy, can't trust. C.J. Procise, you can't trust. But you have to be hopeful overall. The schedule is, coming down the stretch is not that difficult. Um, the defense is playing lights out, like we already talked about. We have to be hopeful about this Seattle Seahawks. Um, and that's my review. That's kind of where, we, where we're at this season so far. And then in next week's episode, um, I'm hoping to get that out on Friday um, I know this is a Wednesday night that I'm kind of finishing this up for this week, but on this coming Friday or Saturday, one of those two days, I'm going to finish up the preview for next week, specifically about the Giants. We're going to talk about their offense, where Eli Manning is at, where their defense is at, and then we're going to preview what the what kind of scheme the, the Seahawks should um, should pick out and what how they should attack the New York Giants. Uh, that's going to be coming up in the Joel Latta Show. We're going to come back, do some thank yous, and uh, we'll close up this episode. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud. You can follow me on Twitter at Joel underscore Latta. Huge thank you to Jason Churchill for joining for joining the podcast, talking the Mariners, talking the future, Jerry DePoto, Scott Service, Felix Hernandez. It's a great time to be a Seattle Seahawks fan as we talk uh, the Giants and the Seahawks. It's the Joel Latta Show. <laughs>